Well, hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ. And you're listening to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. And oh, what's that I see? Oh, God, it's a full moon. Well, before we uh, dig in any further about what that all means, let me bring on my fantastic co-host, the transformational Michael Verratti. Oh, hello, peaches! Claws <laughs> out, paws out. <laughs> that was a good. That was a good, good, but a little bit of a tepid wolf. I think you could do better. Yeah, I'm more like a labradoodle. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was like oh. <laughs> I would do it myself, but I don't want to blow out my microphone. You know, I probably it would just go flying across the the room. Yeah, that please committed. please think of your neighbors. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, people don't realize we actually record at midnight, so you know we have to think about these things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's how committed we are to the midnight experience. We're recording. It's twelve oh one a.m. Yeah, we love a shtick. What better time to record when talking about this week's movie? Yes, the full moon is high. And we're talking about 1981's An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis, starring David Naughton, Griffin Dunn, Jenny Agutter, with special effects makeup by the legendary Rick Baker. Wolf puns aside, this movie is truly fantastic. And it is a movie that's been on our list for a long time. I think that the listeners are in for two really great, in-depth, chunky interviews with guests that that sort of uh, really open up our discussion of the film in, in different directions. And what is obvious to me, having rewatched the film and done now these interviews, is how important this film has been in my life and how much you know I've always known that I love this movie I've always known that it's a top 10 favorite and maybe you know just one of those best movies ever made kind of movie but re-watching it re-digging into it re-contextualizing it as an older gay man as someone who knows a little bit more about world politics and international relationships Wow, what a fucking movie. It's so good. I love whenever we get the opportunity on the show to talk about classic monsters, because I think over the course of many discussions that we've had here on Midnight Mass, uh, you know, we've talked about vampires a handful of times. Uh, We did an episode all about the creature from the Black Lagoon. We've done zombies. We've done zombies. And we've been able to step back and really look at culturally and societally the place that each of these creatures have in terms of how they represent things and how they can represent many different things and how it relates to otherness, because it's no secret to listeners. We also talk about queerness quite a bit on the show. And this digging into the werewolf, especially this werewolf, because this movie comes from a director who up until this point was known for a college kind of sex comedy romp. Yeah. And he brought that energy over. And even though, you know, the the original tagline of American Werewolf in London was from the director of Animal House comes a different kind of beast or something. I'm paraphrasing. Uh-huh. It. But essentially, the sentiment is there. And so when you enter that movie, I think that you kind of expect more of the same. And on some level, a little bit of that humor is there. But it really is a different kind of beast. There's so many layers, whether intentional or not, we can't claim to know what John Landis's intention was making this movie. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding in terms of the fact that we're talking about this and peeling back 
the many, many layers of what it means to us, but to different identities and different communities. Thinking about his work previous to this, Animal House may have been used in the tagline, but this is more Blues Brothers in terms of its comedic tone. And that has everything to do with the brilliant comedians that starred in that film and sort of the dry way in which they were able to deliver their comedy. And I would argue that American Werewolf in London in some ways is even more sophisticated and even better because it's so restrained and it is mixed tonally as we will get into with with a sense of obviously you know straightforward horror and spooky scary shit folk horror for sure and drama obviously there's real drama in here and sadness and tragedy you know so all of these tones and real serious treatment to these tones are in this film that ultimately is also fucking hilarious. That is an achievement, right? It's a true achievement, not to mention the fact that it's just spectacular. It's just a spectacular film. Right, and for all these reasons and more, as we talk about with one of our guests this week, this movie really did kind of change the course for werewolf movies. We'll talk later on in the episode about sort of the immediate impact of American Werewolf in London, but it is sort of one of those movies that it's a before and after, both for representation of this particular monster, but also for practical effects in horror filmmaking and for the ability to sort of juggle genre. Because as we know, there are people who are sort of horror purists who don't like when horror gets a little funny. But this proves that you can still have funny and true horror without sacrificing any of the emotion or the truth behind the intent. This film coming, you know, at the beginning of the decade, the 80s were such, well, we all know it's my favorite decade for horror. And, you know, everyone celebrates the 80s as far as a horror renaissance. But I think this film in particular is really in, in many ways unparalleled because we did see shortly after this, you know, the sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, we saw films like Re- animator or um, Evil Dead 2, where comedy was much more in the forefront of these horror films. And, and the tone was comedic and camp through and through. And don't get me wrong. I love, 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 love those movies. But there is something so deeply touching. There's a depth to an American werewolf in London that matches the hilarity, which is unusual in terms of, you know, what makes it so special. One thing that we don't talk about a lot, but I think we'd be remiss as gay perverts, <laughs> the deep queer text that can be read in this film, probably unintentionally, it's there. We talk about this. The identity of a werewolf and how connective it is to outsiders and to people who don't fit in with our other guest. There is a real kink out there in the world that I've come into contact with, that this film actually is a great catalyst for this kink, as well as the Incredible Hulk and some other characters. There's a transformation fetish. And um, this film, I know, has, has contributed. Now, Michael, I just have to ask you a personal question. Do you have what whatever this is, the changer fetish? I don't think that I do. Okay. I can wrap my mind around... You get it, but you don't necessarily have it. Right. Yeah. I can wrap my mind around why people would be interested in this because... When you look at something like The Werewolf or The Incredible Hulk, you're talking about kind of the purity of, of a sentiment or an emotion or maybe the truest self that gets to like not only come out 
in a metaphysical way, but an actual physical way. And I think that for some people, there's something attractive about that. Everyone has hangups when it comes to sex and, you know, uh, different things have affected us in different ways. And quite frankly, I think people want to see someone turn into like a, a beast and then get fucked by that beast. And hey, more power to them. I think it's yeah. fabulous. This movie definitely inspired a lot of those fetishes. It's true. And if you're out there questioning this, don't kink shame. Kink no. same. Find your people. You know, I I think the Midnight Mass podcast, you know, I think we celebrate this sort of thing and we're excited we about yeah. it. So, you know, this is a movie that, as you'll see from our interviews, it's given us endless amounts of inspiration over the years and we dig into the, the the legacy yes we talk a lot about the michael jackson video at one point but lest we forget this film also has a legacy in fetish and kink that is important to acknowledge our first guest michael i think gets into the real nitty-gritty of maybe what i think was the most interesting aspect of this film especially for you and i re-watching it which is its connection to our queer identity. Absolutely. This next guest is someone that I have gotten the pleasure to know over the years doing panels together and guesting on podcasts together. He is a brilliant, award-winning author. And back when I was hosting my old show, Dead for Filth, he came on to talk about his life and his career and his work. And during that conversation, we touched upon his interest in American Werewolf in London and how it read as a queer text. And even though it was sort of just a, a brief moment in the conversation, I realized, oh my God, there's so much more here. And he has really thought about it and, and, and dug into it and contextualized it. And when we decided to do this episode, I knew we needed to talk to him. It's author Adam Sass, and he's here now. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes a fantabulous night to make romance Neat the cover of October skies You know the leaves on the trees are falling To the sound of the breezes that blow Welcome back, listeners. More than just a fan of a good howl at the moon, our next guest is an award-winning author whose work explores the queer experience through an array of genres. His debut novel, Surrender Your Sons, an LGBTQIA plus mystery about a very bad summer camp, was named Book of the Year by Kirkus and Forwood Indies. And his latest novel, The 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers, was selected by Seventeen Magazine as the best book of 2022. What's more, this September, his upcoming teen slasher, Your Lonely Nights Are Over, hits shelves. He's been featured in Teen Vogue and BuzzFeed and is a frequent guest on the Savage Lovecast and the always culty Slayerfest 98. Outside of his life as a writer, he starred in the horror short Harvest and appeared as a reenactment actor in no less than three movies about the Amityville Horror House. He's an author, screenwriter, actor, werewolf enthusiast, and so much more. Please welcome Adam Sass. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, I am a septuple threat. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm coming at you from every angle. It's so funny you brought up Amityville. That was a million years ago, but this was sort of in the in the uh, fledgling days of when we were doing those sort of like filmed reenactments. It, it used to be sort of the Robert Stack unsolved mysteries, where it'd be like she found her sister in a box, and like you just see like one shot of it. And it was how a lot of people got their sad cards. But um, we were playing um, the real life sort of mafiosos who were very much linked to the original crime, the slayings uh, that Amity Behor grew from. 
Well, it's interesting, too, because Amityville, uh, it's almost become sort of a shorthand joke within the world of horror because you can't copyright the name of a town. So in addition to those movies that came out, we've seen many, many, many a filmmaker make like the Amityville Theater, the Amityville Dollhouse, the Amityville in Space or whatever, 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 whatever. But you were in these reenactments slash docu kind of dramas that were about the actual case. So you got to kind of take it back to the beginning. Didn't you work with Ed Asner on that as well? I certainly did. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, a character, not just the, the friendly old grandpa on up, um, but uh, was, you know, definitely like a gem, but like I, I think it was one of those things where the tone on the set was very Mythbusters. It was very... We are not buying into the ghost. This was simply like a big bloody massacre, like a mob saying, you know, with a lot of very interesting twists and turns family-wise. I am surprised Ryan Murphy has kept his hands off of it um, because it was. <laughs> it's very much like a lot of family interpersonal stuff, plus mafia, plus this, probably because it's very straight. It's pulpy in that straight way. It was one of those things that you do when you're in LA and you have acting background and and you and you're like oh you know I'll I'll get paid for something and then there'll be a craft services and I'll be up there and I'll hang out with cool people who are going to be there um you know we had a very esteemed cast member from the lair we've had cast members of the lair here on midnight mass (laughs) that's in general whenever you see like an acting credit for me it was normally me going "Oh, oh yeah I'm there you know, I was I was a good time Sally for that, which is why I'm not acting anymore. Um, You're a writer for sure. And, yes. you know, a commentator. And um, speaking of uh, a bloodbath of people just dying in the streets and kind of being straight. But I think that, you know, as three queer men about to discuss this movie are going to probably talk a lot about how it's not what it seems on the surface as far as its straightness necessarily. But but you have brought us An American Werewolf in London, the 1981 masterpiece uh, directed by John Landis. And so when did you discover this film and was it Love at First Sight? It was Love at First Sight. So I don't know if anyone here remembers Comedy Central used to be a much different situation. They would pump out a lot of these comedies that were not necessarily like the most comedy comedies. Um, It would be Clue, the late... Uh, Kirstie Alley's Madhouse with uh, John Larroquette. I discovered through that, and then American Werewolf in London, which was kind of, I think, the biggest stretch. That it was the, like the most straight up. This is this is horror that is like amusing because it is funny, and it was edited for TV, obviously. So I was like twelve or something like that. Like the only thing that I can say for queerness of this is that in general, werewolves are sort of a great queer metaphor, as a lot of the classic monsters are, uh, especially the tortured ones. So you have this kind of like tortured guy who's naked for 70% of the movie like it was just like so you do you're just sort of like you're a little like oh puppy like it's okay like because he's just so sad and like messed up and like his friend gets killed and then he's like really traumatized and then like you kind of are like the queers who watch this and who really connect to it do put themselves in the shoes of Jenny uh, Agatar who plays the nurse Alex who takes him in, who's like literally right, like imprints on him right away, who's just like, oh my God, he has these like scars on his chest and face and I'll take him home to my flat and then we'll, you know, like maybe wait seven seconds before having sex with him in the shower. Um, but I think that was sort of it. It was it was love at first sight because it was just so unexpected because the humor of the movie puts you in this place where you really like the characters 
And the humor lulls you into a place where you're like, when you're laughing, you feel very protected. And that's when they will do some very sudden, shocking, horrifying thing. Whether it's a nightmare, whether it's an actual kill, it throws you right away. And so I was just so fascinated at how messed in the head this movie is. It's sick. Like that. I think I think I was very fascinated by that because I think a lot of the horror I had seen up to that point was pretty more on the on the straightforward scale where there wasn't something really like kind of whack happening. Um, and this did have like an extra layer going on. No, and I love that immediately we zero in on this intermingling of comedy and horror that uh, is very present, obviously, in in this movie as well as in John Landis's work overall, because there is kind of an overarching communal discussion among horror fans about comedy's place in horror. But I think this is a movie that really showcases they can be one and the same if utilized well, because you talk about how our lead spends most of his time naked, which is very of the post-Animal House moment, right? The idea of a straight man making another man be naked, it's like, ha-ha, nudity is funny. Whereas I think if you're looking at it from a queer lens, it's very different. It's arousing. For a certain gen, for queer people too, like we didn't have sort of access to, well, any like sort of like online pornography, but also like we didn't have any access, like uh, queer people tend to find, like we, we can't really, like nobody wants to put that in a search engine. We won't really go into a, store and go buy a magazine even in the in the before times like it, it was sort of like you sort of had to like you were just either seeing a, you were like picking up a men's health mag you had to find it in these different ways international mail exactly <laughs> and like you kind of sometimes unfortunately not to be a creep but like you sometimes got it from like a movie where everyone on board was they thought they were making this like animal house the sequel extra animal like um and it was like and they ended up making um tina fey has this in uh her, her book bossy pants where she talked about this like theater troupe who was like the, the guy who made it thought he was gonna you know attract a certain type of like camper there but what he ended up was like kind of a gay bird bath you have like a bird bath in your backyard and it ends up being like no birds go there it just becomes this like home for squirrels and it's, no one intended it but this is sort of what this kind of movie is this is a movie where like i think everybody basically on accident maybe death becomes her is like this as well where no one on board was like let me feed some like queer seeds or sentiment into this it just sort of kind of became that way because you get these sort of themes that are about isolation and loneliness and fearing your body and feeling like everyone around you is a is an enemy and that you yourself are maybe the worst one and you have to be stopped, and then the guy's naked. <laughs> it's a big combination. We would be hard-pressed to find a movie that was made with the straightest of straight intentions. Not that they went out of their way, but they just lived in that sort of, you know, th- there was a bunch of straight white guys making a movie, right. a horror comedy, brilliantly, geniusly. I said it was arousing, but let's face it, his struggle in this movie is so identifiably queer to to anyone, right. especially if you grow up male and queer or male identified or, or seen as male at birth and you, you discover that you're attracted to other guys. It starts with two men as friends who aren't afraid to show affection to each other, who aren't afraid to, you know, joke around, who are on this journey together. There's this this really tragic sense um, when you realize it's too late for the one to save his friend when he has the, you know, he the second thought about it, and then the friend coming back to haunt him. There's like a certain kind of love that's 
presented right there from the from the very get-go then of course we've got the male nudity full male mm -hmm. nudity of a beautiful man who is likable he's not some douchebag he's not some asshole he's not some trashy misogynist straight guy he's a lovable sweet sexy straight guy who then is struggling with what is deep inside of him and what might be a dangerous, scary thing for the world to experience that he can't control. It is so gay. It is so queer. I talked a little bit about this when Megan came out, and I love Megan. Um, if we're calling it camp, I believe a big part of camp is no one intended this to be camp. And I feel like with Megan, it was like there was a little bit of a construct there of like, okay, people are going to really like the dancing and people are going to really like the, 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 the theme. Um, this American World in London, it, to me, is a little campy because it's like this could not be more on paper straight. They, like, There's literally a straight porno playing throughout yeah. the last third of the film. And here we all are. 41 years later going like gayest movie in my life because of those emotions that it does touch on. He's a nice Jewish boy. Like this is the college guy who's like the nice guy. And that terminology and that sort of way of presenting a person like that sets off little green flags. I think in queer people where yeah. it's like, oh, this is a nice guy who's not doing that usual crap. And he really, really, really loves his friend. He's very sad about his friend. Even though it's like, even though it's like, I'm not saying like, oh, anybody, any male who shows affection for his friend is gay. There's just, we're so starved right. for any sort of stuff like that on screen, especially 20 years ago, that we imprinted on it because it's like, oh, this is a man having affection for another man. And this is like why you'll still see like fan art of like, oh, they're boyfriends. And you kind of get into that and no one from the movie has really like refuted any of that because i don't know if it's like come across their desks at all um they know the movie is still remains a phenomenon of horror because like nobody does nobody still does practical effects right. this way well um there's no cg effect that has been as effective as this 41 year old practical effect well i will say that griffin dunn certainly is an ally because he made practical magic you don't make that movie unless you know part of the community it's going to uh but you know we're talking about the queer themes at the beginning of the conversation you mentioned that werewolves of course are a great avatar for queerness as are most of the classic monsters and you even just mentioned the transformation sequence and this all kind of leads to something that i knew i wanted to talk to you about because you have mentioned in the past that in addition to being a groundbreaking moment in practical effects there's a certain read that you think can be applied to the transformation sequence and i wanted to know if you would speak to that not only is it uh the first film to win an Academy Award for Best Makeup. This man looks like he is bottoming the entire transformation sequence. They've shot everything from like torso up. In, in order to disguise the effect, he is hidden behind various, it's very Austin Powers, he's hidden behind various couches and chairs and whatnot. So they do have some nudity, but you don't see like everything. I picked up the 4K UHD disc of it. And when they put a movie in 4K, you can see every scene, zipper, makeup, blot, like this is still peerless. Yes, the, 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 uh, David Naughton does look like he is really taking it. 
That's hilarious. You're so right. But I had never like I never put that together before. But that is so <laughs> funny. And thanks to you now, I may never be able to watch that scene no, the same way again. That scene is so brilliant. I was reading about how John Landis actually was so enthralled by Rick Baker's special effects that he fought with the editor about how long to leave certain shots in and that now John Landis has gone on record as saying, yes, that scene is is edited too slowly, that we linger too much. And I was like watching it going, I don't agree. I think it's so, no. it's so good. It's so, the artistry is so fabulous that even if we as a viewer go, okay, I understand that's not real or that's a puppet hand extending or whatever, um, it's just so good and it holds up so well. And and, and also the other thing I kind of wanted to bring up is like David Naughton is so good. Why the hell did he not become a humongous movie star? How do you star in this movie, deliver the performance that he delivered, carry this whole amazing film that's one of, the, I think, the best horror comedies ever made? You know, I mean, hands down, it's got to be in the top whatever and then not go on and have a huge career. I, I He went on to be face of Dr. Pepper, basically. Well, he was Dr. Pepper before this. Oh, he so this was. was like, oh, I no, didn't realize that. That's the thing, because like, I kept, I keep trying to think of the movie in context, because I would be like, this is like if just some little TikTok boy was that cell phone guy. in like a thing. Can you hear some me now? Guy, like the, the Sprint guy. Like it was right. just yeah, like yeah, yeah. in a thing. It's just like, you know, it was like progressive flow or whatever. Like just some commercial right, exactly. person. Because again, like obviously David Nunn was like working and, and Dr. Pepper was just a thing he was doing. And then he was doing um, that disco album, making it, um, oh, right. you know, at the time. So again, I think, I think not probably, probably, not probably separate from poor management. Right. Um, where it was probably like, oh, he was no, he was doing an LP, and then he was doing he was doing Saturday Night Fever type shit. Then he was doing uh, commercial stuff, and he was just so well known for that. And then he did this werewolf movie that was like, it was a hit, but uh, maybe it was like alien because I because I, that's the thing about the transformation sequence is that I don't want it to be any slower because that's part of the of the appeal of the film and that scene is how weird it makes you feel where we're leaving shots running very long to the point where you're like, my body knows we should be cutting right now, but we're not, so I'm uncomfortable. So it's like you're just watching an undressed man roll around on the floor. It would be one thing to have it be like, because in the story, you're like, okay, the point of the scene is the body horror, is how long you are sitting with, like how much it is just tearing him into pieces, which is why it kind of like, it does feel like, oh, she's taking it. You can't look away because it is this sort of like car. It is like this just horrific thing happening to somebody that keeps happening over and over and over. And it really makes you feel the pain of it. And you're just watching this thing go on for like maybe 30 seconds longer than any other movie, even to this day, would, would allow it to go on. Well, and that transformation really is the turning point of the film, right? Because we talked about the balance of comedy, what we expect of the Blues Brothers Animal House, John Landis. But right. then... I think where in his later efforts at returning to genre, he didn't quite get back to this is that there's a point where the comedy sort of ceases. Once he starts transforming into the werewolf, we get that, you know, wonderful sequence in the subway and then everything that happens at the end. And it's all so tragic. The brevity is gone. I'm thinking that that more than anything also lends itself to the film's longevity, even though we know 
that that couldn't be done today. Like if you did a tonal shift that major in a, in a Hollywood movie today, they wouldn't let you make it. You think about horror today, like there is sort of like we're doing very challenging horror tones, but to change tones midstream right. um, is very is very tricky, and it requires. I mean, I think it requires a lot. It it takes nerve because again, it's a very easy fumble to make, and there's a few scant bits of levity in that. But even then, you're just so you're like pre depressed because you know this guy's doomed. Like, you right. know, this is just going somewhere just very bad. And even though it's like a, the, the movie itself is a very, it, that's what he said, it's very rewatchable. It is a snatched 90 minutes. It's easy to watch and it's easy to like take in. But like, you have like this sort of very bizarre scene at the, at the, uh, the porno theater where you have this vaguely comedic, bad porn acting woman's full, full topless. Having like not even like a sex scene, but just having that conversation where the guy comes in and he's like, "I told you never to do this thing," and like, it's very indulgent. Like he couldn't have done this movie earlier in his career, or I think, or later. And I think this happened at the perfect time because it's indulgent enough to be like, "Okay, no one's first movie is like this," and then it has enough taste to know, like, "Okay, well, he knew like, you know, when to kind of pull back, or you know, or or isn't over censoring himself too much." I think once you get later on, me, I think. You know, sometimes you tend to 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 pull that back, which we, you do see in, in Innocent Blood. Yeah, I'm glad that um, we're talking about the tonal shift because it's yet another layer to this masterpiece that is unique because so many films cannot achieve this, and when they attempt it, it's why the film doesn't succeed. And yet, in this film, not to you know keep hammering down the queer, 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 you know, part of it, but as a as a queer young person who discovered this film in the 80s, I didn't see it when it came out, um, but I, I saw it probably when my, my horror immersion of the mid 80s, like 85, 86, when I was, you know, subscribing to Fangoria magazine and making sure I understood everything. And, you know, uh, so around then, which would have been like when I was, you know, like 11 or 12, like that era of like understanding that I was different from other boys and, you know, that that I was a sissy and that, you know, I had a secret and blah, blah, blah. That tonal shift, the darkness also is very relatable for a young person struggling with these feelings. And the darkness of the, the finale of him essentially wanting to choose suicide. I mean, I hate to go there, but it is there. And, you know, for young queer people, that was very identifiable. It's super dark of me to bring that up at a celebratory show about this movie, but it is there. And I know that I connected to it. And, you know, that is deep. There's real depth to that and the tonal part of it. Because you're right. John Landis did attempt very strongly to keep the comedy going. Like that scene where his victims are suggesting ways he can kill himself. It is funny. And the porno is funny. But because we know what this character is struggling with, the depth of it is tonally so bleak that we are not we're not laughing the way we were in the first or second act i am glad you brought that up because again it, it suicide is something that unfortunately the queer community has to deal with you're either engaging with it more directly or indirectly through someone you know or love mm -hmm. um or you're just in general like it it is in the culture everyone around david is saying you're going to hurt someone if you don't kill yourself 
mm-hmm. um, when he is the nicest guy and this shit was done to him. So it's very queer in that way. And it's something where queer people process trauma through comedy most of the time. Um, it is how it's very livable. It is how we sort of are able to exist with all of the various traumas that we kind of have to live with sometimes, you know, large or small. And even later on, I love Edgar Wright's films like um, Shaun of the Dead and, and American Werewolf in London is one of Edgar Wright's favorite films. Um, even Shaun of the Dead is a more blatant comedy. Mm-hmm. But this is a movie that American Werewolf in London almost refuses to let you admit it's one or the other. You can't for sure say. You're not even sure you're laughing. You know it's amusing, but you're like, this is really ridiculous. But you're like, you're not never you never feel like safe especially after the halfway point you know the scene where he where he almost cuts his wrist in the phone booth where he is talking to his um sister mm-hmm. little sister that we saw previously in like the, the nightmare um where he's got a little sister and a little brother at home and he's got his parents but nobody's home there's something about that, that i found very moving and very queer which is that sort of sheet of glass between you and your family where you're having the same conversation. Your family thinks they're having a normal conversation with you, but you know something awful is going to happen and you can't talk about it. You know that there's something preventing you from really truly connecting with them. And there's a pain there in your family has no idea what's destroying you right now or what's really going through with you right now. And so that's something I always find that scene very, very, very moving in how cold and isolating it is. It's England at its most gray, first of all. So the whole scene is shot very depressed. Um, This movie has a lot of PTSD and a lot of depression. Part of the research, quote unquote, was just reading old interviews and looking at the Wikipedia page. I'm not I'm not a scholar when it comes to my research, but um, John Landis uh, did intentionally choose a time of year in the UK, which he knew would be so much of the year is gray. Right. Yeah. But um, as an Anglophile, someone who um, loves England and works there and gets to live there, you know, usually about once a year, I'll spend a lot of time there. Something I never understood as a kid, or I didn't care or pay attention to it. It never impressed me. But watching it as an adult, like the fact that they're shooting in Trafalgar Square and you know Piccadilly Circus, and you know, like look, looking at that and going, like, how the fuck did they do this? I got to dig in, and and John Landis actually brought a screening of the Blues Brothers to England and invited all of the British police, which is so brilliant, so that they all saw that he was hilarious and fun and a dude (laughs) that they wanted to work with and got their whole group to say, okay, we'll do whatever it takes because movies were not allowed to shoot like that. It is not easy to shut down central London, you know. It's very disruptive, yeah. Very I mean, it's, disruptive. It's, um, it's, it's like a vanilla sky when they shut down Times Square. Right. Um, they maybe shut it for 30 minutes. Um, right. But like, and even that was like an, an extremely big to-do. Yeah, I mean, this was something where Blues Brothers has its very big car crash ending. This is a very big car crash ending. You know, and I, I guess sort of the elephant in the room here is like the next film Landis made after this was the one that 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 landed everybody in court um yeah well and killed people uh, and killed people yes I mean that was the one that I mean this was this kind of put a stop to a lot of his very dangerously ambitious realistic sort of like you know the car crashes look very it's a very visceral ending and I think part of 
why that ending with the with the cars is so you know hurts a lot for me is because I just know how recklessly he probably shot that. Right. If it was b- between a hundred percent safety and a cool shot, he probably wouldn't have taken a cool shot. So I wonder how much of that is. I mean, you're seeing people really get car crashed. Um, there's a lot of you know puppetry going on as well. Um, so you know, I hate to bring that up about uh, about John Landis, but you know that that is sort of a thing that is sort of defines his career. I think from this film on, because Trading Places was after Twilight Zone, uh, and I think this was before. Well, part of what we do here at Midnight Mass is discuss legacy, and you know, legacy has both good and bad elements, and this is just part of the film's legacy. And something I, I did want to dig into with regard to that kind of branching off in an opposite direction, we keep the wolves but lose the Landis, that I think is important to talk about with you. Most of this movie frames David Naughton's character as isolated. He's meant to feel alone. Right. Of course, we know in the 90s, we get American Werewolf in Paris, which is divisive. Okay. I, I do know that you you like it, but I'm wondering if like through the queer contextualization, it has a different read because instead of werewolf, you have werewolves. And it's a sunnier ending. There is sort of life and prosperity following the mayhem. I almost don't even canonically consider them sequel. I mean, I know there's like a through line where he's she's the daughter of the thing. I just I just again it's one of those things where I'm like, I just don't know how that's possible and the timelines don't match up. But I mean, um I think for me, something that I always found very spooky about the release of American Wealth in London is because it has such strong queer connotations and so much of it is about gay loneliness, which is what my first four books are really all about. It's really exploring different sides of queer loneliness. And what that isolation can make people do for good or for bad. American Werewolf in London arrived in theaters maybe only a few weeks after the first mention in the New York Times of what would become AIDS. It's almost to the date you could mark this movie as when that sort of began for for our community. Um, I know it existed previously, but when it was really became public knowledge. And I think a big part of what this this film is is it's not just like the virus existing because the virus existing itself is not evil. What is evil about it is society's forced isolation upon who it afflicts. And I found that very moving how someone is is struggling with something. In, in 1981, someone is struggling with something so much that suicide is the, is the only way out. Regardless, I should say, death is is sort of assumed to be very, very soon. And then culturally, either people don't believe him or are, are indifferent to it or are antagonistic towards him. That, to me, very much defines that 1981. And then you jump to sort of the late 90s, which is we, we did begin to, as a community, really, that was around-ish, sort of the time we, we really turned a, a more of a corner culturally on. That was where it was a lot more understood. We had had um, different faces uh, of AIDS come out. And there was a more enhanced understanding of that. And so for me, I, al- I almost, you know, think of that as like, oh, that's interesting how this film, you know, that came out in 81 is so much about the isolation and immediate death of something like that. And then you you jump to, there's still conflict surrounding it, but then there's such a, there's an actual like, oh, it can be reframed. And so this is something that you are, you know, living with and there's there's happiness, you know, at some point there is peace and there is prosperity and not everyone is an enemy who does not understand you. Sometimes on the show, we get to a level of um, 
in enlightenment for me as a fan. And I feel like uh, as we've been having this discussion, you know, I did, uh, just so everyone knows, I did not come into this uh, interview thinking, I'm just going to talk about how fucking queer this movie is and, and how it only speaks to me as a queer boy. However, having just freshly rewatched it and putting myself in my my young shoes and my young eyes, much like a lot of movies that we cover on Midnight Mass, we are definitely the people to do a queer read on certain things, albeit sometimes stretching or reaching. This is not that. And that connection you just made for me about my coming of age in the mid-80s as a kid who was born in the mid-70s and my sexual awakening coinciding with nothing but AIDS being everywhere and then seeing a movie where a large part of this film takes place in a hospital, especially as the movie's being established, and someone's having fever dreams, someone who's scarred, you know, I'm now going, oh my God, like there's that whole other layer of my own identification because those were the only images of gay men that I was seeing as a kid who grew up outside of Washington, D.C., you know, when ACT UP was, you know, storming the mall in the Centers for Disease Control. That's an amazing insight. And I do agree with you that the sequel also, which I do enjoy as well, is it the the original? No, of course not. But, it, you know, I actually I enjoy Bride of Reanimator as well. Like some, you know, some of these uh, sequels that fans, you know, get so pissed off about, you know, is somehow I'm, I'm able to like compartmentalize them. Right. I liked Texas Chainsaw Massacre that came out on Netflix last year. People were so mad at me for liking it, but it was fun. Whatever. The original film is one of the best movies that will ever be made in the history of cinema. But you can still have a fun, dumb sequel and enjoy it. That being said, American Werewolf in London is genius. And I think your connection between those two films is actually very, like, that's a very queer 80s to 90s leap oh. that makes sense to me, you know. You mentioned, you know, a lot of it takes place in the hospital. So much of it also is a man who suddenly is afraid of his own body. A man who suddenly feels alien, like his his self is being kind of divorced from the body. The body is 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 you know, rebelling against men. And, and this is sort of, these are metaphors that can be stretched to to other things as well. But I think, you know, the queer community is, is so good at this because we just have so few things to do that is because we're sort of the big, you know, rodeo masters of queer subtext in, in really anything. Because again, it's so much of it is anytime someone is othered. There's a Jewish American reading of this film as well. The, you know, the sort of the other man and, and the fears that are obviously pumped in uh, during the nightmare sequences where the, the Nazi demons attack. Yeah. Um, in fact, anybody who has the disc editions of this can see uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful added bonus little mini doc called uh, I Think He's a Jew, um, which was produced purely to look at the Jewish background on this film through the lens of like, you know, it recontextualizes everything like this. We're all sort of cousins to this. I think that's why the power of this film is so great because it doesn't insist upon itself in a lot of different ways. It just shows a very gentle, lovely man in a nonstop brutal world until he dies. Yeah. Um, so that can be read any m number of ways, all of which are valid, which are great. That's my thing is I think yeah. that's what great art does is that, you can bring and you can discover your own things and you're not wrong whether or not the person intended you to read that or not. I think that's why I respond so heavily to Lynch films. And that's why I think a lot of Lynch fans end up liking American World of London a lot too. I've noticed there's a big, yeah. you know, connect with that because a lot of it is identity. It's 
am I capable of this? Am I dangerous or am I not dangerous? Is, is, am I the problem or is society the problem? Well, Adam, as I suspected when we asked you on the show, I feel like we could talk to you about this movie for another like five hours and still barely <laughs> scratch the surface. Sometimes I do think we do ourselves uh, a disservice by only doing half hour interviews, but I just think you brought so much insight in your short time with us and so much for us to continue to unpack and think about. So as we're getting ready to wrap up, you talk about how you first discovered this movie at around 12 years old in an edited yeah. version on Comedy Central. Here you are talking about it all these years later. How yeah. has your relationship with an American werewolf in London changed over the years, if at all? And if you got to choose, what European city would you like to see an American werewolf in next? This movie is the most consistent relationship in my life. I think I have the same level of appreciation. It only just deepens because I am, I mean, obviously I wasn't like 12 years old looking at that going like, Wow, he really looks like he's having sex right now. Um, but like, I could have been. I think probably like in the back of my head, I went probably was like, that's why I was so like imprinty. I was, I was like, okay, yeah, it's all right. Um, but the more you kind of live with some of your favorite films, the more they kind of stay with you. And I think because some of my favorite films are like movies like this, movies like Mulholland Drive, where you have um, queer readings. I mean, Mulholland Drive is a little bit more on the page, but these movies that don't say here's everything even psycho at the end where they're like we're gonna take 20 minutes and explain to you why he put mother's dress on um you know like these movies that you know werewolf and and, and mulholland these movies don't really provide you with a lot of answers it can live in my mind so long because the movie itself doesn't do the work for me you do the work i really love when when anything movies or, or, or tv or, or books do that and unfortunately, it does seem to be getting a little more rare. And I think we, but I think we do have a lot of great. Um, any, anybody out there who is able to see Skinner Rink, uh, I think you should go do that. But uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of my appreciation for it has only deepened because I get to just live with it. And anything I come up with about that movie is correct because the movie doesn't define itself one way or the other. It's a living, breathing relationship. Our evolution with these things, the film itself doesn't change. We know that, that, that from frame to frame and, you know, what, what what's there in the sound design, it, it stays the same. But it doesn't mean that our relationship with these films or what it means to us or our understanding of them, you know, doesn't change over time and or that we, you know, develop a new insight. So, you certainly, by coming on this show, have helped me unlock some more uh, of my deep love of this film. But before we, you know, say goodbye, we know that our listeners are going to want to know where can they find you? Where can they find your books? You oh know, can you give us that? Well, and he also has one more question to answer as well. I do. Oh, I do. Sorry, sorry. Sorry. I was thinking about that. No, no, no. Okay. So let's just say we're going to do American Werewolf in Sao Paulo. Ah, come to Brazil, Werewolf. Amazing. Let's do that. I, I think, because again, this could be really anywhere. This could really be, it's so, I mean, again, I wish the series had just kept going. You know, wow. you could do, hop over all over Europe and then you could do, you know, you could do all sorts of hijinks. I wanted to get Gare. I want an American werewolf in Berlin. You get Sao Paulo and you get Berlin. You got through the gayest cities. Um, <laughs> you can get... What if it's a Brazilian werewolf in Berlin? Ooh. Oh my God, a Brazilian werewolf in Berlin. That's or a great. German werewolf in Sao Paulo. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, yeah, I was going to say, well, once we get too much like, like, oh, a German goes to Argentina, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. A, that has a history. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. But uh, anyway, a different so, horror um, movie. 
that's a different, that's what the boys from Brazil. Yes. Um, uh, for everybody listening, my name once again is Adam Sass. I've got uh, several young adult uh, books out uh, that I consider very crossover. It's for, if you don't necessarily read young adult, I think you will also still enjoy my stuff. If you enjoy my insights, these are, these are just one of the queer insights that I bring to all my different books about gay loneliness. Uh, you can buy Surrender Your Sons and 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers now wherever you buy your books. Um, and you can also, wherever you buy your books, pre-order my first book that's an outright horror story, which is Your Lonely Nights Are Over, which is my ode to Scream. It's my, it's my ode to Williamson slashers. So, you know, I'm not going to leave. I know what you did last summer out. But it's, it's, it's Scream meets Clueless, I'd say. This is a LGBTQ club where two sort of queen bee gay boys um, are blamed for the string of masked killings. And they are very annoyed that they have to solve it to clear their names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, talking werewolves and beyond. Okay, that was our interview with Adam Sass, whose books you should certainly check out. I know I personally felt like we needed to give that much time and discussion to this particular subject, which is focusing on the queer subtext of this film that we all agree was not intentionally put there. And I think it's one of the things that makes the movie even more fascinating is just how much universally, if you talk to a queer person of a certain age, I think it's specifically queer men, and you ask them about an American werewolf in London and, and what the, the experience and what their relationship is like with that movie, uh, Michael, Adam, and myself are not unique. So it might be news to some of you who, who didn't have a queer identity reveal itself later in life, but I think for a lot of our listeners, that conversation probably resonates. I think so. And I really love just how thoughtful Adam was about his exploration of this movie and what he said towards the end of the interview, uh, equating the release of American Werewolf with the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and how that contrasted with the 90s when American Werewolf in Paris came out and how they sort of speak to the moment. That to me was like mind-blowing content. Absolutely. Our next guest is someone that I think both you and I see as a fellow cult leader. Absolutely. Uh, but before we introduce him, I wanted to say that a great cult leader in the world of cult movies has sadly passed away. And Sal Piro, who is the founder, the original sweet transvestite Transylvanian leader of them all, has passed away. And Sal Piro, of course, uh, was the founder of the official Rocky Horror Picture Show fan club back in the uh, early 80s to such a degree that quickly thereafter, I mean, if you think about it relatively quickly in the history of this film's cult fandom, Sal actually was invited to play himself, essentially, in the movie Fame, which I know uh, myself, Michael, Darren Stein, a lot of us have a connection to that film. And one of the most memorable moments in that film is when they go and experience Rocky Horror in New York City. 
Sal Piero passed away and Michael and I did get together immediately hearing about it, uh, getting the news and posted a a little midnight mini mass tribute where we talk about Sal. So rather than spending a lot of time here during our American Werewolf in London show, we want to acknowledge the passing of a great cult movie legend and tell you that if you'd like to join our Patreon and check out that tribute, you are supporting our cult movie endeavors by being a Patreon subscriber. You're supporting this podcast. We appreciate you so greatly. And one of our latest releases is a a mini mass dedicated to Sal Piero. And speaking of of maybe the biggest Rocky Horror Picture Show fan I know outside of myself, Darren Stein, we have an upcoming special interview with our friend Darren Stein that will also be exclusive to the Patreon. So Michael and I are really working on generating some special stuff for our Patreon listeners and subscribers because we depend on you to keep this train on its tracks. Yes, and ever since the beginning of 2023, when we switched our release schedule for the main feed episodes to every other week, we wanted to make sure that we are still out there talking about movies and and shows and things that are affecting us in that cult sort of way. So in the in-between, we do many, many masses. We host Zoom parties. Peaches and I will do little posts about what we're watching or what we think you should watch. So yeah, the party never stops. And what's really been great about the Patreon is that it is becoming its own community. And now I feel like I'm getting to know the listeners. I'm getting to know their movie tastes. I recognize them. I know who they are. And it's just been a fabulous thing. So enough pitching. If we haven't sold you by now, fuck off. Uh, No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, don't Uh, just keep keep listening for free. Just keep taking and taking. That's no, it's fine. I don't, I don't begrudge you. It's the American way. As the the hate mail rolls in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, you know, whatever. I'm used to it. Please. I mean, drag queens these days, we're like number one. I mean, fucking George Santos. Don't even get me started. In fact, I I had a whole phone call from Trixie Mattel last night because of her recent Twitter uh, engagement with George Santos. I'll save that for the Patreon. We'll put that on the Patreon too. But anyway, that was an interesting phone call. That being said, there is a cult leader amongst us who Michael and I have been kind of holding in the wings to bring on a Midnight Mass episode that we thought would be appropriate. And when I think about monsters and the celebration of monsters, this next guest is the guy that pops to mind. He's a great collaborator and friend of mine. I adore him. He is the artist known as Skinner. And we are talking to Skinner right now. Well, we're back, everybody, and this is super exciting. A dear, dear friend of mine and creative collaborator who we've wanted to have on the podcast for so long, since the very beginning, one of those 
cult movie fans who's built a career around their love of monsters and witches and goblins and ghouls, wizards and everything that's evil. He is a fantastic artist who's had television shows and books and done commercials and is also a bona fide, brilliant filmmaker, not to mention, and he would not tell you this, an incredible performer. You can see him performing in some of his own movies. And I just love him to death. He's been a collaborator of mine over at the Terror Vault. He's my husband I'm not allowed to have creatively. I love him to death. <laughs> Without further ado, it's the fantastic artist, Skinner. Yay. Hello. That's me. Thank you. That was really Really wonderful. Damn, I'm feeling good now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even scratch the surface of your achievements. And and here's the thing. You have your own cult, you know. Yeah. I mean, Skinner has his own cult. He is a cult leader in his own right, a big cult leader. He puts out a work of art and people go rabid for it, puts out a piece of merchandise. Skinner and I actually both... Uh, because of Skinner, uh, share a home, a merch home online with the fantastic company Bay Merch. So if you want to check out some of his incredible stuff, go to baymerch.com, but also check out his own world at theartofskinner.com. The thing is, Skinner, I can't even give you a proper introduction because we would basically spend the entire 30-minute interview doing your intro. Well, that's uncomfortable for me to... <laughs> so it's probably best that we don't. Oh my uh, God, that would be amazing. I think we should do that. Like the next time we have you on, I'll just introduce you for 30 minutes and then say goodbye. It's like, well, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> People will be very excited about that. I think the thing is, is so interesting about this sort of time that we're in is that you or people that know me, they're like, wow, this guy does all this stuff. But if you don't know who I am or don't know somebody else, they're just like, what? Who's that person? What? <laughs> because we live in this like really interesting time where it's like all these niche. Yes. Like micro celebrities in the world or whatever. And it's really, it's really funny. You know, it's like, what? Like, I, I love kind of discovering somebody and then going down the rabbit hole of stuff and be like, whoa, this is crazy what this person has done. But we don't look at TV Guide anymore. No, all three of us have really benefited from mm -hmm. that, this thing. Like, we get to be a little bit famous. We have this sort of niche audience within a niche within a niche. But I'll tell you, that is what I love about where we're at because I really love my fans, and I'm sure you really love your fans, as someone who's grown up in a drag world from the underground all the way to it becoming mainstream, I have many, many friends whose fans I hate. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could see that. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's interesting that uh, you talk about the idea of micro-celebrity because I think the other thing that we we rarely get to talk about is how it also affords us the ability to branch out and do all the different things. As Peaches was introducing you, she was listing all the different things you do. And prior to this idea of the compartmentalized celebrity, we had sort of a, a system that made the world only allow to look at you as sort of one thing. It was like a real Hollywood thing. Like, mm. well, if you write romance movies, you can't do horror. If you do art, like you make films, question mark. But now... Because we kind of get to curate and create our own landscape, we can do all of those things. And people get it because we live in a world where you kind of have to do a little bit of everything. Beneath the glossy exterior is the necessity to survive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, it's like um, 
I know people are like, man, you followed your dreams. And I was like, yeah, I guess. Uh, but I, 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 I more like was like, well, I don't have any money and I don't have an education. What can I do? And it's like, well, I could draw goblins like crazy, man. You know, and so yeah, I better figure this shit out. And then not only trying to survive and navigate like, a you know, what feels like an increasingly precarious economic system, but the fact that the democratization of skills and meeting people and, and the ability to collaborate in these really interesting ways and to do high level stuff yeah. very inexpensively with people who are just like, I want to make stuff. So I think you're quintessentially the kind of artist that we love because much like myself, you've taken your love of this stuff that in many ways we we fell in love with when we were kids. And, you know, we've been able to kind of grow up and be sort of uh, adult, quote unquote, kids. We haven't done a nine to five pursuit and we've kind of taken our affection for these things and turned them into something that can, you know, make us a living. And that leads me to this question. Now, I know for a fact that you are um, an expert at drawing goblins and witches and, <laughs> and monsters and and uh -huh. wizards and things that are fantastic. But I have to ask, have you drawn werewolves? Yes, I have drawn werewolves. I bought this one to show you. Ah, there's oh, so good. Yeah. One thing that people may not understand is that when this film came out and around the early mid 80s, even late 90s or early 90s was, I see it as like peak werewolf times. And I was obsessed with werewolves, like understanding the lore, like a little nerd. There was a movie called Silver Bullet, which is like the greatest film of all time. Yes. <laughs> and then um, if you actually look up the book that that movie was based on, it has the greatest horror illustrator of all time doing the drawings, Bernie Wrightson for Stephen King. And then there was a TV show called Werewolf <laughs> or, or, or something. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, what? Crazy. And like, he had a pentagram in his hand. And I was like, what's that? Oh, my God. I remember... Because, you know, as a melancholy preteen, I was like, I hate my life. I hate my parents. I hate everything. I was like, I wish a werewolf would come get me and like bite me so that I could be <laughs> so that I could like just go wander the world and like I would be free. It's like really interesting to think how werewolves kind of symbolize this sort of connection to nature or being free or being uninhibited and and animalistic and um. I don't know. It's a lot of stuff there, seems like. Well, I love that you mentioned the television series Werewolf because I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm a huge fan. And for people who don't know, you know, nowadays we have lots of streaming platforms and lots of channels, but there was a period of time where there were only a handful of channels. And when the Fox Network launched, they launched with Werewolf. It was one of the like two original shows that they had. I had to order my DVD set from France. So I'm a nerd. I'm, not, I'm on board with all of this. Hell yes. But what I love is that you called American Werewolf in London peak werewolf, which really that description says so much. It sort of suggests that it caused a shift in, in where, pun intended, in werewolf <laughs> fiction. Uh, because everything that comes after really feels like it is tied to that, whereas there's sort of werewolves before. And I wondered if you, as a fan of the movie, could speak to that, the idea that American Werewolf kind of changed how we look at werewolves, if you think it did. 
the thing that's super trippy about the movie is like, besides the fact that it is sort of like this just storytelling masterpiece, it's very not formula. It's just like some some dudes wandering around. It's essentially got like some folk horror elements too. The makeup stuff is really cool, but I don't think that the mythological element like this has ever been depicted in a way where it's not just like the werewolf is going crazy in Piccadilly Circus or whatever, but it's like the fever dreams and the memories of like being a werewolf and like, what does that even mean? And finding yourself in a strange land and changing. There's like a lot of traditional sort of rules to werewolfism was like a silver bullet is the only thing that will kill you it's such stuff like that but in this one the people who are killed by the werewolf can't rest until the werewolf dies and i thought that was like a really interesting thing i think that there's just like a lot of like beautiful 80s uninhibited not messed with studio influences in this film that make it really fresh and interesting so when somebody kind of does something for the first time in this really profound fashion, there's like all this, you know, oh, we got to do that now. Right. You know, it's like before yeah. Piranhas, there was Jaws or whatever. You know? <laughs> I have so many crazy, crazy thoughts. I'm just going to spit them out and do with them as you will, but both to Michael Skinner and the listeners. We have had another interview with uh, an extremely gay guest where we focused a lot on how much the gay subtext that was unintentionally there affected our lives, you know, as young queer people. And in speaking with Skinner, one of the things that's occurred to me, and I thought about it and kind of forgotten until you just brought it up, a few things. One is this movie, as far as unique style, we've talked about the tonal shifts of the film, but something we haven't really talked about very much, which I'd like to discuss, is the lack of music and the use of pop music or rock music. And how well executed that was and how scenes that today would demand music that would demand suspenseful music leading up to a jump scare like one thing that's been imitated a million times over is the mirror in the bathroom with the zombie you know friend in the reflection when he shuts it we would never see that executed the way it is done now so just the small little things that the film has influenced as far as michael jackson's thriller goes this movie is what brought thriller into fruition michael jackson saw this movie and then hired john landis and rick baker which we have not discussed yet but we have to discuss to create the biggest music video maybe of all time certainly of my lifetime as as far as influence goes so you know, this movie led Michael Jackson to bring werewolves into the homes of every child around the world. So it is American Werewolf in London that kind of gave this sort of werewolf boost or brought werewolves into this new era. Now, the thing I wanted to focus on that Skinner brought up was the uniqueness of the idea of lineage and these murdered victims not being able to rest. And... Now, bear with me. This might be reaching. This is an American werewolf in London. Is this a statement about colonization 
is this a reference to what British Empire has done to the world? And am I reaching to say that there's something there going on about like until this thing is stopped, these victims will not rest? I could be reaching, but we are dealing with a country that, let's face it, had a, a, a pretty dark history as far as fucking up the entire world. Am I reaching? There's a lot of like references to World War II in the film. So I don't know. That could all be sort of subtly tied together. I'm yeah. not entirely sure. The fact that it's coming from America, in a way, it's like, oh, well, America is so bad that it's uh, colonizing England through werewolfism. <laughs> or is the American a descendant of the British rule? The American is Jewish, which is That's like, true, actually. All kinds of shit. Right, right, right. Okay, cool. Jewish first Jewish werewolf. Like, we get to see the foreskin explode off. And then the, <laughs> during, the, during the transformation, you see like a little werewolf uh, situation pop out but yeah when you're kind of a creative filmmaker person or like an artist person or if you have any working knowledge of the thing that you're observing you kind of start to go into the like i wonder if this and he did this and that and all this stuff and sometimes what i realize is from making music videos or little films and stuff you realize that sometimes you're just like i want this character to keep being in the film how do we keep him in the movie or whatever right. <laughs> you know it's like okay well he's cursed so he has to stay in the movie cool i was thinking about the stuff about this movie that does feel like if you're a young you know a young gay guy watching this movie and stuff like the transformation sequences are like totally sexual. Yeah. And like sweaty, naked dude grinding and yeah. becoming, becoming the thing that he is, you know? And I'm like, this is like a really cool, like out of the closet vibe. Like I'm emerging, you know? And this movie made me think like, how come I love and kind of have this deep reverence for people who are queer is because they have had to have this sort of rite of passage for themselves to be like, I'm going to become the thing and accept myself that there's maybe not the best outcome for me on the outside. And I, I'm going to have to deal with those consequences by being true to myself. I realize that like everybody has that in themselves. If it's conditioning or abuse or trauma or whatever, like everybody is sort of in a closet of some making. And I always thought I want to be free and transgressively joyful and stuff like these gay dudes I know that are like all wild and shit. Oh, it's because I have not actually accepted myself yet. It's like I'm still like, like, I'm not good and I'm doing bad and I'm not enough and I'm not that, you know, and all this stuff. And then like, I was like, oh, that's why. Because I haven't taken that step yet for myself, you know? That's kind of what I was tripping on a little bit. I think there's so much here. I mean, basically what Peach has put forth uh, could be its own dissertation. Whether there is actually a connection to colonization or not, I think that that you found that read means that there's an exploration to be done. What's interesting is when Skinner was talking earlier about the elements of folk horror in this movie, that could connect because folk horror often tells us, I mean, to quote Kier Lajanis, who did the whole folk horror documentary that just came out. She talks about folk horror and how it explores the idea that there are these old ways and maybe the old ways are right. And that's what's scary. And so if you have like 
the colonization of England, but then a werewolf coming through and killing the thing that's there. That's interesting. I think it more could be applied to the idea of generational trauma, which we're talking about a lot yeah. more these days, because the victims stay. It's like, we cannot be put to rest as long as this wickedness is in the world and the generation, blah, 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 blah. What I wanted to zero in on and what you just said, though, Skinner, is the idea of the werewolf is otherness. Because we did talk about this with Adam, our other guest, with respect to the queer lens. But I think that you really tapped into something about the broader idea of werewolves in media. Because when we look at a lot of the classic monsters, there's an element of otherness. But the werewolf specifically is one that I think that if you feel like an outsider, whether you're queer or you're, you know, a goth kid in, in a prep school or whatever, you know, it's the idea that you've got this thing that you're wrestling with that you either need to accept or it destroys you. I'm just wondering if that, in a larger sense, is that part of the connection for you? Because it's it's the struggle of the monster. If you're watching a werewolf movie and you're like, oh, I hope the werewolf doesn't hurt any people. That's one perspective. Or if you watch a werewolf movie and you're like, man, look how unruly and free. Yeah, I got. I want to get like that. I want to be like that or whatever. It really speaks to being somehow inhibited in a way that's, you know, if you see a werewolf and you you enjoy their activities, <laughs> <laughs> an emotional overcompensation, like being a little cramped in and a little like maybe in a place of self-denial or something. Yeah, I was like very into werewolves. I was a deeply serious child, you know, I really loved the Hulk TV show. I was really obsessed with the Hulk. And at the end of the Hulk TV show, he's like leaves the town and there's sad music. And I'm like, man, I wish I could leave the town of my life. <laughs> In that werewolf TV show, he always leaves, right? So he's right. like the constant wanderer where you don't feel connected to wherever you end up and you're constantly looking for a home, which to me also feels like total symbolism for queer, like not feeling connected or just yeah. the overall overarching you know, outsider who's struggling to understand. I mean, like I grew up in a very, in a culture that felt very like boring and conservative. And like, I just felt like trapped there. And um, last thing I want to add is that when you said that the town was sort of, it kind of does feel like generational trauma. The thing I thought was interesting was like the first thing that popped into my head was the secrecy. And in generational trauma, there's like secrets. Like you don't talk about bad things that have happened and you kind of just keep it to yourself. And then, you know, and then you all suffer together. Yeah. <laughs> You're pretend they're protecting the abuser. Who's the abuser? Old fucking old man McGillicuddy at the werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. There's something so fantastic about these monsters that for so long can be reinvented their stories can be retold um but they they stick to certain things that make them unique and with the werewolf i was trying to think of another monster and the only one i can come up with is is sort of the story of um dr jekyll and mr hyde but a, a monster who has that dichotomy of being both like a, a probably a good innocent person who then you know once a month becomes this this monster who does these horrible things and then i was thinking about the way that the werewolf story has been told 
I'm brought up thriller, which really isn't a story. It's more Michael Jackson going, I want to be a werewolf too, you know? (laughs) I mean, and who can blame him, you know? Um, And he gets to be a zombie in that video. But I was thinking about the 50s and how the I Was a Teenage Werewolf became the 80s Michael J. Fox, uh, you know, version of Teen Wolf and how all that stuff, in a way, it kind of gets recycled and spat out. And then I was thinking about like, well, what what if the more recent werewolf things been and and just having watched Wednesday I don't know if you've seen it Skinner but Wednesday you know she goes to this school it's a fantasy about the school that Wednesday would go to but her roommate is this sort of Lisa Frank style rainbow loving blonde girl who has rainbow claws when she wolfs out and she's a werewolf she's sort of like a, a like a loser werewolf because she can't wolf out completely it's almost like she hasn't hit puberty for her werewolfism. Hybrid, like not all. Yeah. Right. And I thought that was fantastic. Like we've never seen a teen girl werewolf and one that's so in love with rainbows and everything, you know, the opposite of Wednesday Adams. I'm sure you've seen Ginger Snaps, which is a movie oh, really all about the best. A girl becoming a woman and, and that yes. monthly cycle that is then equated to werewolfism, which I think is a, a natural down the line progression of themes that we get in American Werewolf through a different lens. Yeah. There are things about ourselves that we don't allow to be and that we can only indulge in those things once we kind of go over the top or become, you know, you drink the potion and then all of a sudden you're Mr. Hyde and you're like tearing ass around town and, you know, slapping Victorian era street (laughs) urchins right and left. And I think, you know, in Teen Wolf, it was like, oh, he's kind of a nerd and then he's a, a werewolf guy and then he learns to accept himself. It's really interesting because I do feel like culturally we're really we've forgotten about just uh, emotionally connecting the archetypes that are in us mm-hmm. and that knowing that nobody is any one thing or one way or whatever. And that it's a, your own personal journey to kind of just like understand what parts of yourself that you deny, what parts of yourself that you shut down, what parts of yourself are out of balance that you do too much of. Maybe you're a little too much werewolf, not enough uh irregular person and um i think the moral of these things is like if you do too too much werewolf activities then the english police will shoot you (laughs) (laughs) it's so interesting like just the werewolf as sort of this like symbol bridge between us and the natural world or or something you know and and then realizing that it's actually a bridge to your own nature in a way it's like an understanding of what what you are denying yourself and what is totally out of control it's like a very potent thing i think to understand but anyways i've been doing a lot of therapy and shit so you could probably tell (laughs) (laughs) that's i i think in some ways how a lot of us start to our path to therapy is often um uh, realizing that our love of monsters and horror movies and all this shit, you know, comes from a deeper place and a, like a deeper yearning for understanding ourselves. And um, and in somehow these sort of fairy tales and these stories, these horror stories, they do feed us somehow. They 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 trigger something about us that we didn't understand or we don't understand. And then 
as we get older and we start thinking about these things and we go to therapy and you know then then you rewatch an American Werewolf in London and go holy fucking shit this was also it was all right there it was all right in front of me of course I love this movie of course I masturbated to this film oh sorry sorry you're a little was, werewolf was, uh, you did your I? werewolf type stuff <laughs> <laughs> that actor is really handsome and yes but what oh, yes. did he, did he go on to do anything else or well yeah he had uh come from dr pepper ads and then yes. after this <laughs> if you are a fan of late night cable uh kind of sex comedies he was in hot dog the movie with shannon tweed where they play ski instructors which i've seen a few times he has that face i forgot I'm going to have to rewatch Hot Dog the movie. But I, I was definitely, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, of course, you know what it's like. And I'm sure Skinner, you probably enjoyed movies where you got to see tits as an 80s kid. You got way more opportunity for that than we gay kids got to yes. see penis, okay? Or even a naked male butt. So I'm just saying, like, an American werewolf in London was special. Yeah. You know, and then, and then add on top of it, he's so sweet. He's so sexy. He's also friends with a man. And their their male friendship does not seem toxic or asshole-ish. Yeah. You know, which actually for a young straight guy who's not an asshole probably probably is attractive as well because so many, especially American ideas about male friendship are actually so fucked up and so toxic, you know, and the way that they're presented in movies is so twisted. And once in a while we'd get something lovely like uh, you know, the outsiders or something, you know, where, where men were allowed to be emotional and, and show love to each other. But like, I felt like an American werewolf in London was one of those exceptions and we got to see him naked. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. <laughs> That's what's so interesting, too, is just looking at films through the eyes of thinking about when it was being made or something and just being like, oh, interesting. OK, they did that. And like pausing to look at the werewolf's face in certain light and be like, oh, wow, look at that looks crazy. It must have been really difficult for them not to want to show more of that, you know, but it's like keeping people hungry to see shit you know that scene where the werewolf is running through the streets of uh piccadilly it's very funny because you could tell it's like on a skateboard or something it's like <laughs> running but its back feet are kind of just chilling on like i don't know like a skateboard or something something like that but you look at a movie like this and you realize as it's happening i think it speaks a lot about how terrible shit is now with like films and stuff and just just our art not being fucked with by the concept of this better make money watching this movie i'm like so surprised that every time at how it's great and doesn't suck and and i always get that with watching films from the 80s and 90s and stuff where you can tell that these filmmakers and creatives, I mean, the fact that John Landis wrote and directed this movie is crazy. And it, it it's like those films back then were not being crushed and influenced by the studios, I don't think. Or they had more reverence for the creatives at that time where they're like, all right, we'll, we'll let, you know, we'll let you do it. But like, if that movie came out now, if they're like, oh, we're going to do this movie now, it would probably be so bad. Like just, Bad. Yeah. Well, and you know for sure that one of the most iconic moments of this movie, the transformation, 
yeah. would have been cut down because it's a very lengthy scene. But that sequence really like redefined special effects makeup for the next, you know, 30 years and still. And that's actually something we haven't really dug into too much with the guests. We've talked about the effects, but just the like impact of Rick Baker in this movie. Now, as someone who, who uh, you know, is clearly dedicated to monsters in your own art, what do you think about the effects work in this? I'm, I assume you love it, but we have to comment. Just watching like the fingernails bust through the fake fingers and stuff like that transformation scene is so wild because as like a nerd as you understand it, yes. you know, you watch it and you're like the edits, there's just something changing subtly edit to edit to edit. And you're like, Holy shit. Okay. They've changed the whole body. Now they're waiting for the face. Here comes the face part, you know? And you're just like, fuck, look at it. It's like squishing and stuff. And so I think it's incredible. I mean, uh, just the hair on the dude's body, like how he looks with like the one hand, even that first part where you can tell that where the elbow is connected would be connected to his body. It's like the, it's cut off and he's just looking at his hideous little dog paw. And you're just like, oh, dude, that looks so good. I mean, it's like... um what is that the economy of uh it, you know they're, they're barely showing any actual changing it's yeah it's very much like they're showing it with the edit like oh here's this thing and then here's this and i think that for you know maybe the uninitiated in films or or you know uh, special effects and stuff wouldn't notice that so much but you can really see the genius in the creativity that it needs to be connected with the editing imagine the amount of okay now come here dude and we're gonna fix your makeup now we're gonna change that like that shot that or that shooting that whole day must have been crazy was it all done in one day probably but it definitely was storyboarded and it definitely it sort of shot like a skinner graphic novel in some ways because it's so visually telling the story and the other thing of course being the pervert that i was as a kid discovering this movie is they very carefully you know uh, avoid that crotch you know because of course i'm like where's that transformation damn yeah let me see it (laughs) so you well, know, that's what I'm say. saying. They needed to show the foreskin part. I know. Off and then, like the thing, you know, the the dick mm-hmm. comes out like alien mouth. Um. Okay. <laughs> so I digress, but I wanted to. Right. I wanted to. You know, I wanted to sort of sing Rick Baker's praises a little bit more mm-hmm. and say the other thing. Rewatching this film as someone who fought when making a horror movie for practical effects in a world today where um, producers don't like that fight at all because it is cheaper now to do to use CGI and rewatching this film Griffin Dunn's transformation that's a slower transformation throughout the movie Jack's transformation you know first he's shredded he's lying in that field you know where they 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 kind of fake his whole body being ripped apart you know that transformation of him into the zombie to to the the porno scene at the end you know with the with the skeletal kind of face 
it is so fucking great. It is just what horror movies, you know, are all like that. I, that is why I love horror movies. That that whole sequence. Rick Baker is a genius. He always we always talk about the werewolf transformation, but if you look at the other parts of the movie, you know, when he's in the hospital and the shredded skin is all is all layered over his face, and you know they put the glycerin on the fake blood, so it's shiny. It's almost glittering. It's amazing. And apparently, I, I don't know if you can see this anywhere, but apparently one of the things that got cut out of the film uh, in order for it to get its rating, because originally this movie was, because of the gore, was not going to uh, get an R rating um, if if John Landis didn't go back and cut a bunch of stuff. But originally one of the things that they had shot was a scene where Jack is eating a piece of toast, I guess, maybe in the hospital or somewhere. And the toast goes in his mouth and comes out, pops out his throat, like a, <laughs> a, 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 cru- a piece of toast. You know, Rick Baker probably worked on that for, you know, however long, but it got cut from the film. I mean, it's, it's a genius movie. Can we see that on YouTube or something? Our listeners often know more than we do about this stuff. And maybe because I read about it on the Internet. So my guess is is that it probably exists somewhere. So if a listener knows where we can see that special effects shot that, you know, was cut out of the film, let us know. That scene that you're talking about where the friend is laying down on the ground, all bloody, freshly mauled from the werewolf is iconic that just yeah. that shot it's incredible so effective and then you can see that michael jackson watching that like i want to be like this zombie guy i want to <laughs> transform too <laughs> that werewolf that michael jackson turned into is like a kind of a were cat kind of yeah yeah i've always thought kind of so. a were cat which not enough were cats in this world John Landis doing this movie with Rick Baker and then the two of them going and doing Thriller, it it really is very satisfying. I love how the Thriller video, you know, just takes directly shots from the American Werewolf transformation sequence, but it is a much prettier cat. You know, it it befits Michael (laughs) Jackson, the look of the world. It's still fierce. I mean, it's still very, very fierce. Mm -hmm. Um, But even when he's like swinging his arms around and hitting like a tree and somehow we're supposed to believe that he's so strong that the tree, you know, falls over. It's like, it's still, there's a grace and a fierceness to Michael Jackson that is just not that scary. So the the werewolf- It it works, but it it is, it's kind of, it's also camp. Well, yeah, because the werewolf in American Werewolf in London is fierce and Michael Jackson's fierce. You know what I mean? (laughs) Michael Jackson's fierce with two snaps around the world. (laughs) There's a spectrum. Uh, (laughs) The connection I loved between the thriller video and American Werewolf in London was the porno finale and then realizing even that is kind of in thriller and you know the whole concept of him going to see the movie with his girlfriend the thriller video and its its relationship to an american werewolf in london it could be its own podcast because of the totally. way thriller sort of changed the world but um yeah. i just liked noting that that whole porno finale of them sitting in the movie theater i was like oh this is kind of thriller too it is and you know we're talking about how the thriller video changed the world but we needed american werewolf in london to change things for thriller to be made and with that in mind as we're wrapping up uh you know skinner something i like to ask all of our guests uh is about their relationship with these movies over the years i imagine that you saw this movie fairly young so over the years has your relationship with american werewolf in london changed at all yeah I like it more as time goes on. I just think that 
as my tastes in things become more and more fine-tuned and stringent and that like I actually really love that it's the connection that this this film and the werewolf element to it is kind of this sort of beautiful catalyst between young gay dudes and young straight dudes and mm-hmm. uh you know that there it's like why well, I'm I'm a little outsider guy I got my I like nine inch nails and I hate my family and then you guys are like you know I just want to jack off to this werewolf boy over here and I want to feel <laughs> and, then, and then I'm like well hey we're kind of we're we're exactly the same so it's like, it is really like a beautiful thing to to be able to derive like kind of this loose understanding of that there's something in me that this film is doing for me it's hinting to me. It's letting me know that there's something inside of myself that I am not fully um, actualized about yet or aware of. And so I need to check that out. So uh, that's cool. That is fabulous. I mean, <laughs> yes. I can think of, I think I think of no uh, better way to wrap things up than the idea that an American werewolf in London is embodies all of what cult is, which is a beacon for outsiders to be drawn to and to gather and, you know, to, to create community around. And certainly, that's been true of my relationship with you, Skinner. And we can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. We'd love to have you back. And yeah, thanks, Skinner. Deeply honored. Thank you. I love Mute Werewolf Boys. And that was our interview with the fantastic and legendary Skinner. I really, really loved how our conversation with Skinner became sort of a exploration of werewolves en masse. We started with the movie, but we kind of talked about how werewolves as a concept appeal to us as outsiders, as a society, as people outside of society. And all of Skinner's insight on that topic I thought was really, really fascinating. One obsession of his that revealed itself during the interview that has caused me to realize I've been neglecting to refer to him as the proper nickname all along. So you heard it here first on the Midnight Mass podcast. From here on forward, he shall be known as Skinner. Why did I not see that? Okay. Uh- <laughs> and I, I'm going to have to text him later and be like, is it okay if I call you Foreskinner from now on? Because you definitely seem really interested in Foreskin. Well, I'm am, sure- am, am, am I imagining that? He brought it up like five times. No, he did. He actually uh, spoke about exploding Foreskin. You know, <laughs> truly the visual we want to leave you with this week. In fact, uh, he should draw that visual. That's he the, should. You know, yeah. One thing, because, you know, we love a little bit of cult crossover, we talked extensively in our interview with Skinner about Thriller. And, you know, the house at the end of Thriller also plays prominently in another cult film that I happen to know you've done at Midnight Mass. Do you know what it is? My God, I don't know this uh, trivia. What is it? The house in Thriller is Madame Serena's house in Teen Witch. No. Yeah. But it, I mean, now that you say that, I'm like, absolutely it is. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I see it right now. Oh, God. I wonder if Foreskinner knew that. Although I don't know if Foreskinner is a fan of Teen Witch the way we are. In fact, Michael, we got to get on a Teen Witch episode. My God. As you know, that is a movie I've celebrated many, many, many times. I know a lot of people we could interview for that. We talked about Teen Wolf. Well, right. And and that's... But the, there's also Teen Witch. The full circle moment, because we talked with Skinner about how American Werewolf in London uh, kind of recontextualized werewolves, and we got that whole run of different wolf movies in the 80s, including Teen Wolf. And Teen Witch began as 
part of a series of movies following Teen Wolf that they wanted to do about teen monsters. And then they kind of slowly separated the properties. But as we all know, much like an American werewolf is a one of a kind film. So is Teen Witch. So, you know, we'll we'll leave you with that little um, dangling carrot of things to come. But certainly Teen Witch has always been on our list, but we might need to move it a little bit more forward. And as you heard in the interview, I will be continuing to collaborate with Skinner. There's a project actually um, with Skinner that I'm collaborating with him on currently, but because it's Skinner's Oh, sorry, for Skinner's project. I wasn't sure if I could bring it up because I don't know if it's been announced yet, but I was very flattered and excited to be asked to collaborate uh, as a performer on an upcoming project. And that's all I'll say about that. It's really for for Skinner to announce. Marvelous. Well, I can't wait for that announcement. I also cannot wait to hear what Skinner's response to his new name is. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep you posted. Thank you. And if you, too, are sitting at home and find yourself aroused by the sight of a full moon, (laughs) well, then you, too, may be one of the children of the popcorn now. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs> <laughs>